Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series, entitled Research Notes in Blockchain, is hosted by Quinn Dupont, former assistant professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and founder of Alumni, a Web3 startup with a mission of putting university diplomas on blockchain. Quinn is also the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. In this episode, Quinn speaks with Jeremy Clark, Associate Professor at the Concordia Institute for Information Systems Engineering, about his research associated with central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. Jeremy breaks down his stakeholder analysis and shares practical information on the intricacies of privacy as it relates to stakeholders in the CBDC space. Thank you, Jeremy, for taking this opportunity. Uh, I really, really wanted to speak to you for a while now. Your research is so deeply fascinating. I think we could talk about a lot of different um, topics, everything from information security to cryptography to, um, you know, you've got work on voting. I even saw uh, you have a really remarkable paper on analyzing topic sentences in uh, technical uh, literature. And I thought that was just fantastic. But today's sort of uh, topic I think that we're going to be talking about is central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. And... I have to sort of admit right off the top, I typically, before I read your work, I thought CBDCs were boring and they weren't very interesting in part because all the stuff I'd read had been like, you know, central bankers who with, they had like regulatory controls basically and very, you know, little understanding of the technology, or you've got some folks who have maybe some notion of the technology, the sort of prototypical cypherpunk. But they have got these really unrealistic and I think actually maybe borderline harmful kind of ideas. And so I thought your work was fantastic because it was able to avoid those tensions. And and just before we kind of get into the discussion on central bank digital currencies, for me, I'm very motivated by some of the, the importance of central bank digital currencies. You know, we've got everything. We've got worries around corporate capture, you know, Apple Pay and these kinds of things. Um you know, uh, becoming more and more popular, demonetization issues, changing roles of governments, and so on and so forth. And so what was so fascinating about a couple of your papers, when you put them together, for me, there's two approaches that jump out. And this is kind of where I want to focus our conversation today is design landscape and stakeholder analysis. And and so maybe we'll kind of just, if we can, start with the second stakeholder analysis. And you've got this really wonderful paper that, first of all, it reduces the sort of problem space of multiple stakeholders to just like three kind of stakeholders in tension. And that's law enforcement, privacy advocates, and data holders. Can you maybe just, just tell me the story of, of, of that stakeholder analysis and why this is sort of kind of a key point, I think, understanding CBDCs? Sure, sure. So first, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a fan of this podcast, and so I'm, I'm happy to be on the other end of the headphones. Uh, yeah, so so this is a paper. First, I should acknowledge that it is done with co-authors. Uh, both my PhD student Didam uh, Reiner is a professor at University of Innsbruck, and Raphael, who's at the Bank for International Settlements. And uh, the focus of the paper was really on the privacy question for CBDCs. It's something that we um, you read a lot. Like you you read any of these boring central bank papers that you mentioned, and I you know I've read forty to sixty of them. And they all say the same thing, like privacy is really important. We got to figure it out, but that's it. You know, legislation will figure it out. There'll be a public debate about it. We'll, we'll consult the stakeholders, whatever the case may be. And so 
as a cryptographer, I want to jump in and say, oh, we can do some fancy things using crypto and zero knowledge proofs and things like that. But then I thought, well, like what what's the actual problem that we're trying to solve? Like what what should proper privacy look like? Right. And no one has a has, has a really good answer to that. Um, also, sort of in parallel, you see a lot of debates uh, between pundits about CBDCs and they have totally different models in their heads about what privacy looks like. And there's there's implications for privacy, like privacy implies whether you have identities and identities have implications for how inclusive it is. And so so like these things are all kind of interrelated as well. But, um, you know, there, there, there was no consensus uh, and and. Yeah, a CBDC can look completely different uh, depending on, on how you design it. So so anyway, these are the sort of things that are bubbling up in my mind. Um, I also, like you, found the topic really boring at first, but it was in the exact intersection of my interests. I've done a lot of work on cryptocurrencies starting like very early looking at Bitcoin. And I've gone to central banks. The Bank of Canada have done blockchain projects for large value payments so I've been to the bank, I've talked to them, I've gone to their conferences, I'm interested in what they do. I, I tried to teach myself, you know, as much as I could about central banking. And then when CBDCs came out, I thought, okay, this is this is great. Uh, it's it's right in the intersection of my interests. I like things that have some sort of public interest. So this is yeah. something that like every Canadian could potentially use and then, you know, for, for other governments around the world. Okay, so so all of this. Then the stakeholder analysis, that piece actually came from an earlier paper uh, that we wrote a few years before, where we looked at secure email. So like encrypted email, PGP, SMIME, these types of technologies, almost no one uses them. You know, even the people who invented PGP, like Phil Zimmerman's like, I, yeah, I don't use it anymore. Um, and so we, we tried to look at that whole like sort of mess and, and try and figure out, okay, what went wrong? Um, and, and it was in that paper where we hit on this idea of we need to look at it from the perspective of the stakeholders, because you have a bunch of stakeholders and they want different things. And you do actually have a set of solutions. So it's not like there's just one. Right. And, and there are people who use PGP. Right. And they're, they're, you know, they're in a minority. You know? And so anyways, when you look at it from a stakeholder's lens, it kind of makes sense of the story. So mm -hmm. then I thought CBDCs are kind of like that. Right. So um there's there's a whole bunch of so my my idea was to start very ambitiously. You, we would have some big table where we'd have the ten different kinds of stakeholders, and then for columns we'd have all their desires and wants, and then we would like try and map it out. But then the, the more we we went back to it, eventually we kind of settled on this idea that you could really vast vastly simplify it. Like almost the whole all the tensions really just come down to the three parties you mentioned, right? So you have the users who are privacy enthusiasts, who, who care about privacy, basically have, have some opinion about it. You have law enforcement. So that, that tension is pretty obvious, right? Um, you know, privacy enthusiasts would prefer, you know, something that's cash-like, anonymous, and have privacy. Law enforcement, they want to be able to investigate crimes. They don't want the, the anonymity technology or the privacy technology to, to stand in the way of their investigation of crimes. And then the less obvious, but now it's being talked about more, I think. But when we first wrote this down, almost no one was talking about it, is you have the kind of, we call them data holders, right? The data brokers, right? The people who want your, they want your data, not because they're investigating crime, but, but because they want to sell you something at the end of the day, or they want to monetize your data, right? And 
there's even a relationship between law enforcement and data brokers, because if you have these big data brokers and they're in the jurisdiction of law enforcement, they have somewhere where they can easily go with a warrant and, and, and get the information that they need. They don't necessarily have to deal with banks. They could, they could deal with third party uh, brokers and, and things like that. And so anyway, so, so there's different relationships. And then the data holders themselves are sort of competing with themselves. So they, they want, um, they don't mind if data is private, if it excludes their competitors from getting it, right? Like if it's private to their competitors, then that's fine, right? Uh, they, they just, they want to have the data for themselves. They want to have exclusive. The, it's not just that they want the data, they want it to be exclusive to them. That's, that's when it's the most beneficial, right? And so it's, it's not that they're opposed to all forms of privacy, right? If there's some privacy where they're somehow in the loop, right? Maybe because technically they have to be because they're the payment rail, right? That, but no one else can access it, then that, that's actually great for them, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so then you can go through like the different like existing payment methods and, and try and think about what how we resolve these tensions or didn't resolve them and then what that might mean for a CBDC. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to pick up on that last point around the importance of data holders, this is something that really struck me that especially in the imagination of, you know, what we now call Web3 or whatever, right? Uh, if this is a, a future that will occur, uh, which is, I think, roughly speaking, just to say we have a lot of uh, decentralized economic transactions on the internet, well, data holders are going to be vastly important here. And and this sort of, this goes to your intuition that we're at the intersection here of a bunch of interesting regulatory, political, technological kinds of questions. And, and for the sort of engineers in the audience, I think this is one of these moments where it's really important to recognize the diversity of options that by kind of breaking it open like this, that you've kind of really identified. And obviously, you know, I would refer anyone to look at the paper for the sort of the specifics and the details, because it's really quite um, extensive, your, your, your analysis. But maybe we can kind of start with your um, first division around soft and hard privacy. So soft, you call this like middle ground cryptography. And right. this struck me as absolutely correct and was the insight, I think, behind Bitcoin in the first place. I always thought, I thought, so I've had these debates with cypherpunks in the past where, you know, they take that really hard line and it's, it's, it's sort of very difficult to um, talk with these with these folks. And, and then Bitcoin comes around and, and actually throws the whole thing out and says, look, we've got probabilistic security. We've got a game theoretical. It's not, it's not all or nothing anymore. And, you know, this just struck me as like a, this is how information security works. It's never all or nothing. We know this, right? And so it's this, that middle ground techniques, those I think are super, super interesting. So can you tell me a little bit more about the distinction between soft and hard and, and, and maybe even start telling me a little bit about what, what soft means versus hard? Right, right, right. So yeah, we wanted to distinguish uh, between so, so just as a first cut, this doesn't get all the detail, but just so that you sort of orient yourself correctly, um, hard privacy, you can think of as like crypto. So if you don't have access to it, there's, there's no way you're getting access to it. Like it's technically impossible to get access to it. So it's very clear cut, like this is private, like no one will ever know this information or it's not private. Now, even when you have hard crypto, you know, people might make a secondary record or it was in plain text on your computer before it was encrypted. Like, so hard crypto is never, you know, fully hard, 
but anyways, that, that's sort of the idea. And then soft privacy is more laws and regulations, right? And, um, you know, so, so like the warrant system, like, like you need judicial approval in order to, to read something. But if you can get that, you can read it. And then um, I should mention the article that you read is um, a kind of a shorter version. We actually have a longer version uh, that will come out as a, a BIS working paper soon. And we revisited this idea and we thought, actually, it's kind of nice to think of it as more of like a quadrant where you have hard and soft privacy, and then you have a corresponding definition of what we call uh, hard and soft auditability. And so uh, a soft auditability, actually, I'll just give an example again. So, so think about like preventing money laundering, right? You might have a rule like you have to report every transaction over $10,000 to FinTrack, okay? And so that's a hard auditability rule because it's clear cut. A computer can look at the transaction amount. They can decide, yes, I need to report this or no, I don't. Then there's other rules in the same legislation uh, that will say anything that's suspicious, you need to report. We're not going to tell you what suspicious is, right? And if there's ever a case where you didn't report something and the courts decide later that it was suspicious enough, you know, you're going to get punished for it. Um, but that's very discretionary. So that's sort of like soft auditability, right? So most of what we do in payments today is in the sort of soft privacy, soft auditability corner. Right. So it's it's laws and regulations protect your data. And uh, if you want access to the data, especially from a law enforcement perspective, um, you can use discretion. Like it, it's how well can you craft an argument for a human judge to, to listen to and, and decide whether you should have access to it. Right. Um, we do have some hard auditability, like the over ten thousand dollar rule. And those types of things are meant to like just create less friction for transactions that we think we will be interested in if we're law enforcement, right? So there's some transactions. So if we can write down a rule, then it's really easy. We don't need this whole warrant system. Um, so the, the soft audibility and the soft privacy is kind of a fallback for, uh, for hard auditability and soft privacy, okay? Now the crypto people, they're in um, first off, they could be in the far corner of hard audibility and hard privacy, where it's hard privacy because they're using crypto. And it's really, really hard audibility in the sense that there's a, a really simple rule about whether you should disclose a transaction or not. And it's that you should never disclose it, right? Like that's the simplest. Yeah. Rule, yeah. Right. And so <laughs> that point is, they'll be happy about that. Right. That's the strongest. Now, what we're starting to see, especially in the last two years from the crypto community, I see a lot of papers like this. It's like, well, let's do some, you know, it's crypto cash. It's an, it's like cash, it's, you know, using cryptography, but we have some carve outs. So like if you want transactions over $10,000 to be decrypted, then that's fine. So you have hard privacy on everything else. And then you have this rule and then there's some special escrow key that law enforcement can use, right? You even mentioned, if I can just jump in, this idea of an anonymity quota, which yeah. I just loved because it's a combination of it's soft and discretionary, but it's got like a programmability to it. So we can, I can imagine you could get some really sophisticated technology to make this process more efficient even. Yeah, exactly. So that that's, yeah, that's a rule. That's a hard privacy, hard audibility rule. So everybody gets 
whatever, $10,000 a month and you can do whatever, you can anonymize it. Like think about Zcash or something like that. You can put it yeah. in the accumulator. I mean, it could even be dynamic or something. I mean, there's so much that could be done there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the idea of a budget is, is prevalent. There's the idea that uh, if it's over a certain threshold, it gets reported. So under, let's say under a threshold, it's, it's unconditionally private. Uh, if it's a certain amount within a certain time period, it's unconditionally private. Um, there's some where senders and receivers are treated differently. Um, so that, that, you know, maybe senders are anonymous, but receivers are not. So you always have one party that you can go to, to try and figure out the source of a transaction. And, uh, there's a few more that are escaping my, my mind at, at the moment. Now, the criticism that we have of these is they sound really good for some crimes. Like if you're trying to do big AML, anti-money laundering, you know, tax evasion, that kind of stuff, you know, the amounts are important, right? But let's say you have a fugitive that's on the run. Maybe they kidnap someone. They're going to a gas station. They're filling up with gas and law enforcement wants to know it because they want to catch the person. But it's a $20 transaction and it's the kind of transaction you and I do every day. And for us, it's the kind of transaction we would expect to be private, right? Like law enforcement doesn't need to know every time I go to the gas station, right? But in this specific case, they do. And so in a soft auditability where you have human discretion, you could say, well, you know, maybe we can do something about that. But if you have these hard crypto rules, then you, you can't, you, you, it locks them out, right? And so you, you need to also think when you want to balance it with law enforcement, you have to think about what is it that law enforcement really wants? So lots of attention is given to KYC, know your customer and any money laundering. And I think that's because the rules are hard, right? They're easy to understand. Over $10,000, everyone's identified, like they're clear cut, right? But there's lots of crimes where the, there, there, are, there is no rule that you can write down that a computer can interpret that would separate the payments that commit this crime from the payments that don't, you know what I mean? Right. And then yeah. smurfing attacks and things like that, like you talk about. Yeah, exactly. And then and then you can think, well, if there's a hard rule, then can I ev evade it? Right. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if I have an anonymity budget, can I have lots of identities so I can get all my cash? Or you're not using your budget, so can I use yours? Right. Or if it's over $10,000, can I split it up into smaller payments so that I'd never cross that threshold? That's and I think what's really important to underline on this that your research demonstrates so nicely is um, these are real practical concerns. Like, you know, that's to say um, rules are going to incentivize changes of behaviors. Um, and so, uh, you know, a static uh, security um, rule is, is, is maybe um, not just limited, but actually in, in, a, in a real world will induce behaviors to work around it. Yeah, ex absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that's, I don't know if we make that point explicitly. I can't remember, but I, we definitely discussed it. A lot. We had lots of long conference calls just talking about all yeah. this. And um, so, yeah, you're sort of you, you've, you know, you're talking here about okay, well, this in the paper you call it the ring A, the first, the first ring where the law enforcement lives, and and just you sort of um, as a as an assumption saying we live in a we live in the real world here. Um, we need to balance uh, protections and and law enforcement should have some uh, sort of access here. Obviously, there's going to be a bunch of people who are just they're just not going to like that's just not something they're going to kind of engage with. And, and the same sort of story might be if we start to bring the central bank 
um, new potential potential new roles for central banks into this equation. Or alternatively, you talk a lot about um, uh, money service businesses and these kinds of so maybe there's new expanded roles for money service businesses. And we have to therefore trust these entities. Can you tell me a little bit more about especially that that notion of trust and and how that that ring A might kind of modulate? Sure, sure, sure. So. Uh, actually, in Ring A, well, let me define it, but I will say that we don't think of law enforcement quite in Ring A. We think of it as a couple of rings out. But um, the idea was that, okay, you have payment data that's private, right? Or it's like personally identifiable. It, it should be private, right? It's, it's specific to us, right? And some people need access to that payment data just to do their job. Like if I want to send a payment to you, Someone has to figure out whether I have the balance to even give it to you. And my balance is private data. And so just mechanically, the whole thing's not going to work if I can't convince someone that I have adequate balance. Now, cryptographers will say, well, you don't have to show them the balance. You just have to prove it, right? Or whatever. So setting that aside. But the point is that that the, the ring A is like for the people who need the access to the data because they're actually involved in the mechanics of the payment itself. And it's really hard to think about how they could do their job without having access to the data. And then as you go to like B, C, D, we have four rings, but you it doesn't really matter. It's just sort of that, that idea is you move kind of from this primary use of the data to secondary use, right? So data holders might be on the next ring where it's like they don't need the access to the data, but they like it uh, because they're, they're trying to, to monetize it. And then you have law enforcement and they're you know, they're, they're trying to solve crimes with the data. So that's technically a secondary use of data. And then on the far ring, we have like kind of like intelligence agencies, especially like think of a foreign agency trying to learn about payments. So I'm in Canada. So someone else outside of Canada trying to, to find out payments of Canadians. Tell me more about this, because this national security uh, concern, uh, you know, that struck me like a bolt of lightning reading this because... <laughs> It's it's one of those things that just people don't tend to think much about, right? But um, you know, national security is is one heck of a motivator for certainly political action at the very least, and I think it's a genuine, real concern. Right, so, right. Can you so, tell me more a little about that? Yeah. So the, our motivation there was um, like we're not selling hard soft privacy, like, but but we wanted some examples where even like law enforcement would agree that we need privacy. Right. Right. So right. law enforcement, like like. The way that we've talked all through this podcast, you would absolutely get the impression that they're against privacy because they want to solve crimes. But when it's their job to protect the information of Canadians or Americans, right, from foreign intelligence, then all of a sudden it flips. And no, they do want privacy as well, right? And so as you go out the rings, you can also think about like more and more people agree that we should have privacy from, from these particular entities and, and the extreme example being foreign intelligence and foreign intelligence, they don't do anything useful with your data, right? Like they're just, we call them data sinks, right? Like they, mm -hmm. they consume all the data that they can get their hands on. And there's no real tangible benefit to me because some foreign intelligence agency got my data. At least with law enforcement, there is a, a sort of, if you believe in the deterrence theory of crime, then there's, there is some benefit to them being able to access data, you know, to solve crimes or whatever. But the further you go out in the rings, the benefits get less clear. And it's not necessarily sorted. Like you might argue, well, I, I'm ha more happy giving it to law enforcement than to, to Facebook or, or to, you know, the, the data brokers, right? And, and so that, that's open to debate or whatever. You know, the, the, the ring was just to get us sort of thinking 
kind of along along these lines. Yeah. So I want to switch a little bit off of the sort of discussion of privacy and but pick up this point around uh, the global nature of CBDCs. Obviously, central banks around the world operate very differently and so on and so forth. Um, and talk a little bit more about that kind of design landscape. But before I kind of get there, I'm reminded of a colleague, Margie Cheesman, who has a report coming out shortly. She's an anthropologist who's done work with a, a variety of NGOs over, um, in, you know, countries in Africa and the global south and these kinds of places. And there's a concern there. Or, um, so these are NGOs, but they're very, you know, they have a lot of interactions with CBDCs. And there's a lot of a, a cash and identity types of uh, uh projects that are being experimenting, um, that are experimenting right now. And her concern is, you know, she sees this worry that we're kind of experimenting with the global poor here by implementing these systems. And I think some of that discussion around CBDCs is relatively easy to sort of put into that um, framing, especially since, uh, you know, we might see some early leaders being countries that you know, just economically, they're not as stable. They don't sort of make quite as much sense. Like Canada doesn't have a CBDC yet, right? And I think that there's probably like a real political reason why that is. Any thoughts? Yeah. So first off, like we, my only attitude towards CBDCs is, is just that we we think as hard about it first before we actually jump in and, and do something, right? And so all the research hopefully is sort of, you get that impression when you read it, that that this is really about, let's figure out what we're doing you know, before before we start doing it. And I, I think, I mean, we, we have seen CBDCs deployed and um, they do tend to be in smaller economies. Uh, so we see them in like, for example, Caribbean islands uh, that have them. And in, in some case, there is a sort of geopolitical angle to it. It's like, well, we're dollarized and we don't have our own dollar. So let's let's try and do something about that or things like that. So there, there absolutely is geopolitical like rationale for who chooses it who doesn't um if we end up experimenting with the global poor that would not surprise me and that would concern me as well right and so i i don't know how to avoid doing that and i i wouldn't advocate that a large country necessarily speed up the development of a cbdc to try and offset um unstable countries from issuing cbdcs but Maybe that that that's an argument that that needs to happen, but yeah, yeah. So I I would share the concern, but I don't have any solutions, unfortunately, for it. Right. Um, one of the so to talk a little bit more about kind of the role of central banks and some of the uh, uh, subtleties that need to be accommodated when we start to think um, about you know, realistically implementing these things. You make a distinction between a reserve and a deposit CBDC which I think is really helpful because it allows us to sort of break apart some of the economics there. And, you know, you talk about, um, I mean, some really sort of fascinating things like, about uh, seigneurage, or, I mean, there's even, you can think of demurrage or like interest and negative interest policies. And, and, and by breaking those uh, apart, it changes how, I mean, the, the knock-on effects even are just, they, they start to become, really meaningful and, and, and important. So these aren't just, um, the, the, these, they don't, they don't necessarily look like cryptocurrencies as we imagine them today, actually. That's a sort of a fascinating thing that, uh, I, I found in your research. Could you tell me a little more about the, some of those distinctions and some of the issues that emerge out of that design landscape? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so there's these like really boring sounding topics that that like you say, like they, there's major ramifications. And you also see this in policy debates as well, like like where people they're against a CBDC because they think it will lead to negative interest rates. And someone else will say, no, no, this is how we protect ourselves against negative interest rates. Like you can take the exact opposite stance because of the way it's designed uh, could, could do it. So if we think about money today, let's think about three kinds of money. So there's there's probably more, but, but there's three major types of money. So I can have a banknote in my pocket. Uh, so that's government backed. It's a direct claim on the government, on the central bank. Doesn't earn interest, right? Uh, but it's safe, safe money. Uh, safe as the government, anyways. Crypto people might disagree, but um, you can have banks, bank money. So my money sitting in in a checking account at my bank. The bank goes bankrupt. Maybe I have some insurance or something like that that protects it or some amount of it. But it is possible. We saw banks go bankrupt in 2008 in the U in the United States in California, especially. Um, you know, and and. There is deposit insurance, but there's a cap uh, to, to the amount. And it was raised during the financial crisis. But anyway, setting all those things aside, um, you know, your, your money is at risk to some extent uh, by having it be a claim against a bank as opposed to the central bank. And then there's a special kind of money that, that we don't have access, me and you don't have access to. But if you're an actual bank or a financial institute, you have access to, which is you can have a bank account at the central bank. And so a bank account at the central bank in a country like Canada will pay interest. It'll pay an overnight interest rate. Um, and, and there's a lot of things you hear about setting interest rates actually have to do with that. And I, I won't like explore that here. Um, but, but, but anyways, it's more like a deposit. It's less like a bank note. But like a bank note, it is a direct claim on the central bank. There's no one that's going to go bankrupt other than, than the country, Canada, for example, uh, other than that, there's no one to go bankrupt that would cause you to lose the money, right? So a CBDC, you could say, as a, as a first glance, I think the first proposal I, I read was was called FedCoin, and it was, oh, we should do a CBDC where it's sort of like anybody in the world can put their money at the central bank, right? And then yeah. the, the the digital currency is just sort of like a digital check. You're just you're moving money from my account to your account, but the account's sitting there. It's earning interest. There's an interest rate. And all, all the, the benefits of, of having it as a deposit at a bank. And then now the majority view views it more like a digital banknote. So it's drawn down from the central bank. It doesn't earn interest. It's like a banknote. There's no, you don't have to go through the bank to transfer it. So from a privacy perspective, if it's a bank account, to move the money from my account to yours, the central bank has to know that that's happening, right? Like they have to, they're in ring A on that, mm -hmm. right? Um, but with a banknote, I can give it to you and the bank doesn't have to know about it. It knows how many are in circulation and that's it. And you could conceivably design a, a cryptocurrency that would behave the same way. Zcash is, is close to it. Um, so, but then you have the policy ramifications. So like, let's take negative interest rates, right? So normally if I put my money in the bank, I expect to earn some interest. Now I'm not super excited because it's going to be a small amount of interest. But what I absolutely don't expect is that I'm going to get negative interest meaning that I have to pay the bank to keep my money at the bank, right? The tax. And, right. And what countries will do is sometimes they'll say, well, we, for monetary reasons, we want a, a negative interest rate. Now, the problem is everyone's going to pull it out in cash because then now it's not earning interest positive or negative. They're going to stick the cash under their mattress. So what the governments, the central banks say is, well, as long as it's a moderate interest rate, 
so that like it's just slightly negative so that the whole ordeal of withdrawing cash and cash, you have to secure it, right? You have to store it in a secure location. If you're a big business, you you might have to put it in a vault. You might have to have security 24-7. Like it's not free to hold cash, right? So they know that. So they're, they're like, well, this is kind of- This kinda... is the synergy uh, cost, yeah? Yeah, yeah carry, we call it carrying costs. So synergy is, is slightly different. I'll, I can talk about that in a second. So synergy is like the difference between the amount of money it costs me to print a $100 bill, which is maybe 10 cents, and the face value of the money, which is $100. And so since I bring that $100 into circulation minus, you know, whatever, the dollar I had to pay to print the bill, then I've created $99. And who gets that $99, right? So that's, yeah, that's sort of the idea of Seenridge. And Seenridge shows up in stable coins and cryptocurrencies. And it, it's a whole thing that's that's very interesting as well. But but anyway, so yeah, things like Seenridge and negative interests how you design the CBDC is going to have ramifications for this. And some people are like, negative interests are great because it gives us another tool to control a recession. And other people are like, we hate negative interest rates. You know, we should we should all be on, on you know, the gold standard because, you know, we, we don't want this, the central bank sending policies like that, right? And there's a CBDC for both of you, right? Like right. those two people can have a CBDC that, that, that helps them or, or helps achieve what they want. Um, it's just a question of how you design it. Right. Those are the sort of policy goals. Um, well, I mean, you know, this discussion has been so fascinating because you realize at the end of the day that in, that indeed CBDCs are at the fascinating intersection of these kinds of um, uh, economic and political and technological challenges. And so maybe just to kind of wrap up here, because uh, I think we could go on and on, but do you have any um, thoughts, you know, that uh, what would you tell an engineer who is interested in CBDCs and wants to, you know, think about how I'd approach the, the, the design landscape and to sort of better understand that? Is there some sort of take home lesson that you could maybe offer as a, a sort of closing uh, comment? Yeah, so I actually was sort of in this position with my students. You know, we decided we want to work in this space and they're, you know, very capable engineers and they could immediately start rolling out, you know, crypto protocols that would, would let you implement some of these things like anonymity budgets and that type of stuff. And they, um, and my advice was, no, no, let's actually back up and let's think really hard about what, what the requirement should be. Like what hmm. should the privacy requirements be? And so I think both approaches are fine. There, there are some research groups that are, are going ahead and they're deploying CBDCs. They're, they're writing code. You know, MITs, for example, comes to mind. They're, they're DCI. And they haven't, they said we didn't figure out privacy. That's in version two, version one. And we're just, we're going yeah. to, you know, work on some of the scalability issues and things like that. And, and, and we'll, we'll come back to you on, on privacy. And I think there's merits to that approach, you know, just sort of jumping in. You're at least showcasing what's possible you're showing central bankers what's possible because they don't necessarily have access to this or they have tools, but you know, these people like they, they write code from scratch, but everything's from scratch. You know, it's, it's not like something that you get elsewhere. And so, um, so yeah, doing these pilot projects. And then also I think the blockchain space, web three decentralized finance, stable coins, that's another place where you can showcase designs, right? So, some people, when they think about CBDCs, they're looking at what Zcash is doing. Zcash has nothing to do with central mm. banks. It's not government money. 
right? But there is a crypto primitive there that's being showcased that could be, you know, dropped into a CBDC, right? So you can find these sort of parallel worlds of, of currency and payments, and, and you can try and show that your your ideas work, at least in that setting, and, and that's also going to inform the debate on CBDCs. Yeah, fascinating. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. A pleasure for me, too. Thank you for listening to our interview with Jeremy Clark. To learn more about the IEEE Blockchain Initiative, please visit our web portal at blockchain.ieee.org.